Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series in the book of Colossians, and here the team will be discussing Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. If you've been helped and blessed by this podcast, we would love for you to head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star review. That really helps to strengthen this podcast's reach and get us in front of more and more listeners. Do be aware of the upcoming events that we have here at Theopolis, all of which are linked in the show notes. We have a regional course this weekend on April 8th and 9th. That's in the city of Chicago on Creation with Peter Lightheart. We have an upcoming intensive course here in Birmingham, May 16th through 20th on a theology of history with Rich Bledsoe and Peter Lightheart. We have our upcoming summer conference, July 18th and 19th, and recently announced a regional course on creation in Cary, North Carolina in the month of August. All of those events you can find in the show notes. We want to thank you so much for listening. We hope that you enjoy this conversation. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, and Alistair Roberts discussing Colossians chapter 3. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with James B. John and Alastair Roberts. Jeff Myers, who's regularly on the podcast, uh, is with his family today, uh, dealing with a family matter and is not able to be with us. Uh, Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing everything out for you. Thank you for joining us. We appreciate your presence here. We appreciate the interest in the Theopolis Podcast, uh, and uh, we're very thankful for the growing Numbers of people have been listening to us over the last year or so. That's been very gratifying for us to see those numbers increasing. And uh, we pray that it would continue to be an edifying podcast for all of you. We're in the middle of a series on the book of Colossians, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And we've gotten halfway through the book. We got finished with chapter two last week, and we're going to start into chapter three. Once we finish Colossians, we're going to be working on the epistle of James, Jeff Myers has recently completed a a commentary on that epistle from Athanasius Press. So we do encourage you to look that up. And we will be going through the book on our podcast uh, once we finish off Colossians. I would just get the setting for the beginning of chapter three. I wanted to back up to chapter two. Paul has exhorted the Colossians in 3.6 to continue walking in Christ in the way that they've received him. And then the bulk of the bulk of chapter two is a series of warnings about things that can inhibit that walk in Christ and can distract the Colossians from that walk. There's debate, as we've talked about, about whether Paul is dealing with actual heretics and opponents within the Colossian church, or whether he's warning them about something that's a general threat to the churches, but not a specific threat to Colossae, at least at, at this point in its history. We've also talked about the nature of the threat, and uh, I think there's been a consensus among the four of us that uh, the, the focus, the focal point is on Judaizing that has overtones, Judaizing sometimes has overtones of Hellenism, and it's given Hellenistic kind of descriptions. Uh, but Paul is warning them about confidence in circumcision. He's warning them about adherence to the rules and decrees of the, of the world of the elements. In verse 20, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Those are decrees of Torah, and he's warning the Colossians not to go back to that, and also not to cling to what he calls man-made commandments, human ordinances, and human traditions. They should instead adhere to the Word of God, and especially to the Word of the Gospel. 
So the, the warnings have to do with slipping back into this old world. According to Paul, they've died to that old world. And since they've died to the world, they shouldn't continue to live as if they were still living in that world, but they should live in the newness that they have in Christ Jesus. Uh, the other thing that Paul says about these false philosophies and these uh, the, the slipping back into the old into the old ways is that it doesn't actually work. The end of chapter two, he ends on that note, a, a kind of prim, pragmatic critique of these opposing positions, these opposing movements. They have the appearance of wisdom and self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, he says, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. So the ascetic practices that he's opposing, uh, these man-made traditions uh, that uh, are about prohibitions about food and drink and touching unclean things, those provisions and that restraint and that severe treatment of the body says doesn't work. It doesn't actually subdue the flesh. And so the question that leads into chapter three is the question of what does in fact overcome the flesh? How do we live a life in still in the body, still in the mortal body? How do we live a life that is a life of the spirit, a life of following in Jesus, walking in Christ? How do we do that if it's not through these ascetic practices? And that's something of the thrust at the beginning of chapter three. Paul's going to tell the Colossians how they're supposed to live and walk in uh, in the newness of life that they've been given in Christ. Peter, I was going to raise a few of those things that you mentioned. So I'm, I'm glad you brought them up because I listened to you guys talking from uh, last week and a couple of weeks ago, um, which was quite an unusual experience because a, a couple of times I was going to kind of interrupt and make a comment. And then I thought, actually, I'm, I'm not on this recording. Um, but I, I, I listened back to it and I was trying to think, like, um, what in practice do you think this um, chapter two-esque sort of old order teaching would look like today? Um, how might a preacher kind of go, go along that uh road today you know i don't think i've ever sat through a sermon when i'm encouraged to keep a sabbath or celebrate a new moon or, or, or various um rituals from the old covenant you know so um yeah like before before we go on to what paul is is uh, positively endorsing um yeah what, what what would it look like in, in practice to do to do the old thing here well i think one one uh, obvious issue has to do with the um various kind of man-made rules. I think we talked about this on one of the episodes when you weren't here. Uh, there are a lot of churches that have various rules about what you should drink, should not drink alcohol of any sort. There have been movements in the United States, at least. I don't know how widespread these have been in the in the UK, but there have been movements over the uh, last couple of centuries in the, in the United States where you have food movements that are movements of spirituality that, uh, you know, if you eat certain foods and they will curb your sexual appetites and you'll be able to walk in holiness because of the foods that you eat. So there are movements that have specific links with what Paul's talking about that, you know, do not taste and do not touch, uh, do not drink. Those rules uh, do come up at times. But for me, I think part of the issue, I think we're going to, this is more what we're going to get into in the first part of chapter three, but part of what Paul says we must leave behind are the old uh, identities and, and loyalties and solidarities and particularly insofar as they inhibit our walk in Christ. So uh, he'll say at the, in uh, verses 10 and 11 that we're being renewed in the image of the one who created us, and that renewal is a renewal without distinction. So Jews and Greeks, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians even, slaves and free are being renewed in the image of Christ. 
So I think part of it would have to do with maintaining strong sense of identity that is that becomes a, a competitor to our identity in Christ, whether it's a national identity or an ethnic identity or some kind of implicit class identity. Those are ways of slipping back into a pattern of life that uh, the gospel has uh, that gospel has over, overcome. And in that respect, this text can have bearing upon a wide range of different things that would not be clear analogies to it within the current context. So you might think, in addition to those sort of social identities, class or nation or something like that, we might also think about the sorts of identities that people can build up for themselves around diets, around exercise, around these forms of self-discipline that are not bad in themselves, but yet they can, for many people, bear an immense weight of identity. And as such, they can become competitors to what it means to be who we are in Christ. Yeah, and and in the light of that too, you, you obviously have a long tradition of ascetic practices that do promise a certain increase and achievement of holiness. You know, if you if you want to truly be holy, then you need to isolate yourself, and you need to indulge in these um, uh, in these heroic fasts and these heroic acts of self denial, and that is the path of holiness. And that's been a fairly common theme in uh, in various sectors of the church. But uh, again, I, that that seems to be pretty directly what kind of thing that Paul is opposing. One of the things I pointed out in an earlier episode that I want to reiterate here is that uh, Paul does give. He lists a series, of, a, a set of virtues that Christians should should follow. In the latter part of chapter three, he's going to give direct instructions to different groups of people in the church: to wives, to husbands, to children, to fathers, to slaves, to masters. So he ha- Paul is not against imperatives, but what keeps Paul's theology from being merely a matter of a new set of par- imperatives? It's not a new law that Paul is proclaiming. Is the the theological grounding of all those imperatives? And I think we see that pretty starkly in when we compare 2.20, you have died to the elementary principles of the world, uh, and then 3.1, you have been raised up with Christ. And the foundation of the exhortations that Paul gives is the death to the old world and our renewal in a new world, our renewal in Christ. Uh, and all of the exhortations are about uh, living in conformity with what is, first of all, true. You know, the, this is a well-known way of describing the pattern of Paul's letters. You have indicative and imperative. You have the statement of what is the case for believers in Christ, those who are in Christ. And the exhortations, the imperatives are basically be what you are, or you're on a trajectory to be renewed in holiness in the image of God, be what you will be. But that's not that's not a self-striving, that's not a that's not any kind of legalism because it's grounded in communion with Christ in the spirit. That's that's the foundation for Paul's exhortations and the way of life that we're supposed to live in Christ. And here, our lives themselves are objects of faith. We can often think about our lives being evident, and um, we can just look, and our, our lives are obvious, what our true existence is. But yet, Paul's argument here is that our true existence is, in some sense, hidden. Um, it's hidden with Christ and God, we have been raised with Christ, and we are seated with Christ at the right hand of God. And so what we truly are is not yet apparent. And so we have to live by faith in the character of our true existence. We 
often think about this in terms of justification. We do not appear righteous, whether to ourselves or to others. We can be very aware of our sinfulness, our failings, our guilt, and yet we're assured that in Christ we are justified. We're declared to be in right standing with God. And on the basis of our confidence in that declaration, we're supposed to live our lives in accord with that fact so that how things appear should increasingly be brought into conformance with the way that things really are. But the hiddenness of our life is maybe not something that we reflect upon enough, even when we're talking about um, in common discourse within Christian circles, we talk about our identities in Christ. But that identity is, is always a veiled and a hidden one in this age. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, I mean, we, we often, I uh, think Protestants especially emphasize faith and rightly put a lot of emphasis on faith, but it's faith in God's promises, faith in the promise of the gospel. Uh, we live it, we're living by faith, but Paul is saying, even our, we don't know ourselves. We don't know our own lives. It's not just that they're hidden. Our lives are hidden from others, but our lives are hidden from ourselves. And so, as, as you're saying, Alistair, our, our identity is an identity that we have by faith in God's declaration about us that we are hidden with Christ. I mean, you, have, you do have this dynamic, of course, of verses three and four, where there's a, there's a current hiddenness. Our life is hidden with Christ in God, but then there's a future revelation of Christ and then we will be revealed with him in glory. So that there's a there's a hiddenness that is a it's like the hiddenness that Paul talks about when he talks about the mystery of Christ, which he does earlier in Colossians and he does elsewhere in his letters. The mystery is what is hidden in the ages past and is now revealed in Christ. I mean, even in this age, in the new age, our identity and our existence as creatures being renewed in the image of our creator, that is a hidden reality or in, kind of folded into the mystery of Christ. So when the mystery of Christ is fully revealed, that's also the full revelation of ourselves uh, to the world and to ourselves, a revelation in glory uh, that uh, it's currently obscured and secret. Just a quick comment maybe on the kind of direction of, of travel of, of what's going on here in chapter three. Um, it feels to me that in the first two chapters, one of the main uh, distinctions is chronological. So um, Paul talks about the fact that the church has uh, received the gospel and then talks about Christ as as before all things, um, obviously in terms of preeminence, but also in terms of time. He He's before all creation um, and he's the head of the church insofar as he's the firstborn from the dead. And chapter two obviously has this sense about a, a new world, which is coming in a, a new order as, a, as opposed to an old order. So there's chronology. Now that obviously is brought forward into um, chapter three. It's, it's here too, but it feels to me that the emphasis is more the, um, the above and below split and, and setting your, your mind on things which are, um, above rather than the things on the earth. And we've seen these kind of shifts of direction before. I remember when we were going through um, Daniel, it, uh, a vision could be talking often about things unfolding over time or about geography as, uh, you know, uh, Alexander heads into the ancient Near East, for instance. And then suddenly uh, the vertical dimension comes into play as there's a uh, an anti-god figure who reaches up from the stars and uh, or for the stars and it seems that there's one of these uh shifts uh shifts in direction here which which as i say isn't 
a complete difference, but it, it brings in a new nuance, I think, to Paul's, uh, uh, Paul's topic. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful point. And I, I would say this, this, is a, this is the way I put it in my Revelation commentary, that in, in Revelation, heaven is the place where things happen first. So I think we can, we can harmonize the, verti- the, the spatial vertical emphasis with the chronological one. The lamb is enthroned in heaven first. And then uh, the kingdom of the earth, the kingdoms of the earth become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. The saints are exalted on thrones in heaven first. Uh, they're ruling with Christ in heaven. They don't yet rule on earth. Uh, Hebrews uses the same kind of logic. Uh, Christ, is, Christ is in heaven. We don't yet see all things subdued to him, but we do see Christ exalted. So heaven is the place where Satan is cast out, but then Satan in Revelation is cast out in order to, not in order to, but once he's cast out, he begins persecuting the mother and the saints on the earth. So there's a, I think there's a harmony between the vertical, the, the vertical dimension and the chronological one. So by by setting our minds on things above, we are also setting our minds on things of the future. Uh, we're setting our minds on the Christ who is to be revealed, and we know that our life is hidden there in Christ, uh, with Christ in God, and that uh, that that life will be revealed in glory at some time in the future. So the, those two, they're not identical. I think you're right that the 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 spatial uh, the spatial idea brings in a different nuance, but they're 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 linked up pretty closely. I also want to make the point that this is a I think this is an important one on two sides. Paul is exhorting people to be to set their minds on things above, things in the heavens. We're supposed to be heavenly minded, and that cuts two ways. I think it cuts against the grain of a kind of, a certain kind of Christian activism and a certain kind of Christian worldviewism. Uh, we need to be involved in this world. This world is good, all of, all of which is true, but then we shouldn't be heavenly minded if we're going to be involved in this world. I think Paul is saying the opposite. The only way we can be rightly involved in this world is by having our hearts and minds seeking things above and our hearts set on things above. So it cuts against a kind of activism, but I think it also cuts against a kind of quietism or speculativism, speculation. Because the thing that's the focus, what's above, is Christ himself. The reason why we're uh, seeking the things above and the reason why we are, uh, our minds are set on things above is because Christ is seated there at the right hand of God. So to say that we're heavenly minded is to say that we're focused on the exalted Christ uh, and that we recognize that our life is with him, uh, hidden with Christ in God. Uh, and so it's not, it's not uh, being heavenly minded is not about speculation about angelic, you know, the nine orders of angels or whatever. Being heavenly minded does not mean that we're neglect things on the earth, because if we are properly heavenly minded, thinking of and focusing on Christ as the ruler, he's the ruler of all things. So being heavenly minded means we are immediately brought back to think about how Christ is ruling on earth and how his reign is being realized on earth. So that's, I think it's a really crucial thing to, to uh, get that the right kind of heavenly mindedness um, against both of those, uh, both of those tendencies. Yeah. And it feels to me that there's something incredibly countercultural about this uh, exhortation of Paul's that we're to set our minds um, on what's above and to kind of reorient our, our sinful ways to reality, to who we truly are in, in Christ. And as I say, that is quite counter countercultural. I am a um, man. If I start to feel 
uncomfortable in in my body as if i'm kind of in the wrong uh, sex uh, the wrong sexual body then there are people who would encourage me to have an operation you know to to change my body to have various uh, hormone uh, re- replacements or, or or whatever and paul's command is, is fundamentally the the opposite of that you know th- there is this tension um within us we've still got this um sinful nature but we're to conform uh our, our thoughts um to our true identity and, and to reorient our minds which is um yeah not the done thing these days conversion therapy is is not not seen as good this this transforming of the thoughts isn't the way to go in in common culture the opposition that we have in this past in this passage i think continues from what we've seen in chapter two this movement between death and life we have buried with him in baptism in chapter two and then if with christ you died the elemental spirits of the world in verse 20 of chapter two and then again for you have died in verse three of this chapter put to death therefore um, in verse five and throughout there's this emphasis upon a clear division between a period when we were dead in the flesh but also alive to that particular realm and our death to that realm and our being raised up and brought to new life within this new realm of being in Christ and the key point that that's connected with is the point of baptism that we're buried with Christ in baptism and that this is sealed to us within that moment. And it's almost as if Paul is preaching to the Colossians the importance of what their baptism means, that as a seal, it's also a declaration of who they truly are, um, the transition that has occurred in the body of Christ into which they are united. He died and rose again, and we are buried with him so that we act as the um, walking dead. Um, We've died to this old realm, although we're still functioning within it. And we're alive to this new realm in anticipation. And that transition is one that has a rootedness for Paul in the realm of the body, in the realm of actual social um, relations that comes out again and again in his ethics. But many of these lines, I think, converge, or we might think about it as as streams, um, as a confluence within the context of baptism, that baptism actually gives this an immediacy as we take that sign seriously. That's exactly right, uh, Alistair. That that's the marker. That's the that's the effective sign that uh, uh, transition from old to new. It's the sign of death to the old and uh, renewal in the new. And I think you see that there's a there's a parallel at least in language between what Paul's talking about in Colossians and what he says in in Romans six, where the baptismal discussion is more overt and extended, because he moves from talking about death and burial of Christ and baptism, and then talking about the use of our members, and we're to devote the members of our bodies as uh, instruments of justice instead of instruments of injustice. And uh, he, you have a similar kind of move here. So we're raised with Christ. Uh, that's continuing, I think you're right, and, and died with Christ in verse 3, continuing the baptismal. Baptism is in the, in the deep background of those statements. But then the exhortation has to do with what we do with our members, um, verse five, the members of our earthly body. That's the same word that Paul uses in Romans six. In Romans six, it's more clearly talking about the members of a human body, the organs of a human body that we're supposed to devote our hands to justice and our mouths to speaking the truth and our eyes to discerning uh, 
between good and evil and so on. Um, so but here, the, the interesting kind of metaphorical use of that word, uh, because we're dead in Christ, the exhortation is be what you are. You're dead in Christ. Therefore, put the earthly body to death, the members of the earthly body. But the members of the earthly body are not physical organs, but sinful uh, habits and practices. So it's almost as if the immorality, pornea, impurity, passion, evil desire, idolatrous greed, it's as if those have become the organs of a body, the people that he, what, what the Colossians once were, were embodied incarnates immorality, impurity, passion, and so on. Uh, and so what they need to do is kill those things that, you know, have become so second nature that they seem to be part of their, they seem to be limbs of their own body. Ways of life have become, they become incarnate embodied embodiments of these vices. They, they seem second nature. And these are the, precisely the things that Paul is telling them to put to death. I wonder if we could just think about uh, this word hidden, which obviously Alistair has mentioned before. Um, I, I totally get the idea of, of there being that, uh, this new life and new whole aspect to us, which is not um, visible or, or, or even tangible in, in many respects. And we could think of, um, where is it? Is it 1 John 3 when it talks about the fact that we, we are not, um, it, it doesn't yet appear um, what we will be in, in the age to come. And that's, you know, that all makes sense to me. I, I was wondering also about the sense in which hidden could be, uh, could more have the sense uh laid up or, or, or stored up, in, in which case there might be a, a nuance of, um, uh, of protection to it. And, and so our life is, is, is now protected um, with Christ uh, in God. And in, in the same way as I guess people in Revelation uh, want to hide, they want to hide from the face of, of, the, um, uh, of the Lamb. Uh, and uh, I wonder if that's also um, a sense of, of the word hidden here. Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's true. I think there's a, one of the implications of that claim is that our true life is impervious to any earthly attack. If our life is hidden with Christ in God and Christ is above, seated at the right hand of God, then no earthly attack can touch us. We're, we're out of reach. So I think yeah I think that's I think that's an important uh, dimension of what uh, what he's talking about. I was going to also say that you pointed out James the above below the shift to a kind of uh, spatial arrangement rather than a, uh, rather than a chronological one in this passage. That above below is uh, and and heaven earth that contrast is is fairly unusual in Paul. Usually earth doesn't have the connotation that it does here. Earth is earth is typically I would say pretty. Uh, uh, straightforwardly refers to the land or uh, the physical world, the, the environment in which we live. But here it takes on the the connotation of a realm of uh, evil and rebellion against God. Verse five talks about the members of your earthly body, your body of earth. And I think that's related to, well, the, the, that kind of contrast is related to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, where he contrasts the man of earth with the man from heaven the first Adam with the last Adam. So that duality is at work in the background here. And that comes out pretty strongly when we get to the uh, next few verses in verses uh, nine through 11, where we're to lay aside the old man, put on the practice, put on the new man being renewed in the image of the one who created us. It's clearly creation language. It's Genesis one language. And the one word, the man we're supposed to put, put away and put to death is the, uh, the old man who is Adam, the man of earth, 
and we're supposed to put on the new man, the heavenly man, which is Jesus. So that the terminology of earth and heaven above and below, I think, is uh, linked up with the, the two types of humanity that are associated with the two covenant heads. Right. And we get a similar juxtaposition, don't we, in, in uh, James, which Jeff could tell us about if he was here, when there is the, uh, the wisdom that comes down from above, I think it is, but contrasted with uh, that which is earthly and um, unspiritual and actually even goes on, I think they to say, um, demonic. You know, so there, there is a, a very sharp contrast there. Paul includes a, a couple of uh, lists of vices, things that were to put to death. And it seems like you have a, a distinction between the zone of concern of the first list in verse five. It's not exclusively, but it's generally surrounding the seventh commandment, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery and sexual sin, uh, with a reference, of course, to the eighth commandment, thou shalt not steal with a reference to greed at the end. Uh, the next list that's in verse eight is anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, which seems to be circling around the sixth commandment, thou shalt murder, and the ninth commandment about bearing false witness. But you have uh, these two groups of things that are to be put to death that uh, seem to, to link up with those two sets of commandments. And I guess the, the head vices that we're talking about are in verse five are largely uh, sexual sins, perverse sexual desires. And the second list has largely to do with uh, anger and wrath uh, and expressions of that in various kinds of malicious behavior. Uh, one of the things I wanted to raise here uh, from this was uh, the, the equation of greed with idolatry that you find at the end of verse five. There are several things occur to me that um, make that equation seem plausible or, or natural. Greed can become a kind of uh, uh, our, our trust or our desire for uh, material wealth can become a kind of uh, substitute God in the sense that we seek security in it. If we've got, you know, we've got a lot of money stored away, we feel safe from disaster because we, can, we know we can pay our way out of whatever disaster is going to come. Uh, we begin to trust in it. Some, in some cases, greed becomes the dominating passion of life. We don't seek first the King of God and His righteousness, but we seek uh, wealth and money and the various comforts and the power that comes with wealth. Uh, that becomes the overriding dominant passion and end of life. So I can see ways that uh, idolatry and greed are identical. The greed, great greed can be a, a form of idolatry. But I wonder if, if you all had any further thoughts on, is there something deeper in, in the equation he's making there? I do wonder why um, you focus upon the eighth commandment when it seems it would be the 10th that would most come to mind for me, um, thinking about, the desire and the greed that there is this, and also the um, sexual immorality is connected with the seventh, but also I think with the tenth, the desire to take the neighbor's wife. I think when we're, we're thinking about the relationship between that desire and idolatry, for me, the connection would be the sort of pride that is at the root of that desire, the desire in the case of the 10th commandment in many respects is to take the place of your neighbor um, to it's the fundamental thing that underlies all the other forms of sin that you have in the second table and i think even beyond that the whole of the body of the law it's that deep down pride that lies at the root of all the devices that would propel us into the place of god and so behind all of these sins of desire 
is that fundamental idolatry that would vaunt our importance, our priority over the one who is our creator. Yeah, I was thinking along similar lines, Alistair. It feels to me that with greed or covetousness or something, the fundamental premise of it is that basically God has done a poor job of the way he's distributed things. You know, the way he's, if I covet someone else's uh, spiritual gift, then, you know, God should have given that to me instead. Or if I covet someone else's uh, physical abilities or, or money, you know, I, I've been cheated. And, and the idea, I guess, with that kind of envy is that God is there just to satisfy my needs, to give me what I think um, I should have. And, and so idolatry really just feels like it's at, at the root of all of it. Um, a, a slight side note. Since I've been thinking about a, uh, a book on numerology, I'm unable to go through past a list without counting its its members, basically. And so um, y- you've got all these fivefold lists, which I'm sure is um, uh, significant in some way. You know, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is then sort of expanded. The next one is fivefold anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk, and it. And it, it goes on there are a couple of other fivefold lists in the chapter as well i always find it curious looking through these sorts of lists as well and seeing hints of the logic of the vices and the virtues that these are not just isolated sins but they in they're interrelated and intertwined and one particular vice gives rise to or is akin to others and part of what's taking place here i think is also a recognition of the way that some of these things can be integral to our sense of self. Um, You can think about the ways in which um, Paul talks about sexual sins with the body in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. The danger of those things, the particular danger of those, is that they can become especially defining of people's existence and identity. All these other sins are done outside of the body, as it were, but there's something peculiar about um, some of these sins that are more at risk of entangling our very sense of existence up with them. And I think when we talk about modern understandings of sexual identity, we see very powerful illustrations of how um, intense these vices and these um, forms of desire can be in defining people around them. They become the reality around which everything else is drawn. Yeah, and I think Paul's pointing to that in, uh, well, I think he's pointing to that in part with the use of the word member in verse five, because these have become vicious people embody their vices, and those vices become so much a part of them that removing the vice is like, is like poking out an eye or cutting off your hand. Uh, and I think also in verse seven, in them, and he's just listed those vices in verse five, in them you once walked. And when you were living in them, or even, you know, the preposition there could mean by, it could be an instrumental, you're walking by them. These are the means by which you walk. Uh, These are the means by which you live. These vices, to fulfill these desires, that's what you live for. Instead of, go back to the uh, earlier use of the walking image in 2.6, Paul is exhorting the Colossians to those who've received Christ to walk in him, that's in stark contrast to the way they're, they used to walk. So, yeah, I think there, there's a, yeah, a Paul, Paul is picking up on exactly the point you're making, Alistair, that these become definitive of the person, which means, which is the reason why 
the surgery and the opposition has to be so radical. Uh, it's a matter of putting aside an old man. It's putting, uh, the putting aside the person that you once were. That person that you once were has been killed in baptism, has been killed by union with the death of Christ. Whatever remains of that deathliness, that needs to be put to death because this is, this is, part, of the, this is part of who you have been but no longer are. And you need to put the necrotic tissues of that old man need to be, need to be lopped off and, and, and destroyed. I'm wondering if you have thoughts about verse six um, and uh, Paul's warning that the wrath of God will come against the sons of disobedience in some, in some versions. Some of the translations leave that last part out, but he's warning that there's wrath coming on people who practice these things. Uh, that could mean final judgment wrath. It could mean the wrath of that happens within the life of these people. It could mean the wrath that's expressed as Romans one puts it in God delivering people over to their sins so that they get what they desire, which uh, when they get what they desire, they're receiving uh, destruction because what they desire is in fact death. Uh, or is it something more imminent? Is it talking about the, the shaking up of the old world and those who are, especially if you have the phrase sons of disobedience, is he making some kind of reference to the rebels against God who are live in that time? There's a, an increasingly stark differentiation between those who are in Christ and those who are outside. And the wrath is coming on those who oppose the church within the first century, the shakeup that's coming within the first century. Or is it something more long-term that he's talking about? I mean, I, I don't doubt that there is a long-term uh, aspect to it. Because the wrath of God is spoken about, it's this thing which accumulates, you know, and, until it finally uh, spills over, if we think about the exile in the Old Testament or, or that kind of thing. But um, but I take the, the fact that this verb is, is present tense to um, very much have the sort of Romans 1 thing that you were um, talking about, um, Peter. You know, the, the wrath of God is currently being poured out on various uh, people, which is being... Uh, reflected in what's going on in uh, uh, our world, which did go on in Paul's world, and 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 so on, and and so uh, I take that to be its its uh, main thrust, at least. Something I've been struck by is just Paul's injunction to um, at the very start of this passage to set our minds on things which are above, and I take this idea of setting the mind to do with really fixing our attention on something in a, a, a deliberate and a sustained way. And it must be true that today that there are so many things that we can set our minds on, which just wouldn't have been possible or at least wouldn't have been as easy in times past. If we think of, for instance, the war in Ukraine at the moment, a hundred years ago, that would have basically meant to me, there's a country out there somewhere and, and there's fighting going on. Um, but today, I can fill my head with uh, images. I can see a 24-hour news feed. I, I, I can set my mind on that um, in an unhelpful way for a start, but in, in a way that I couldn't previously. And um, something else I can do is just developing myself a chronic distractedness where I'm flitting from one thing to another thing all the time because I'm unable to sort of give sustained attention to something. And... Um, I think against the backdrop of all that, you know, there is this uh, injunction from Paul to set our minds in a in a sustained and fixed um, fashion on the things which are above. And um, I, I like the translation that 
emphasizes the the comma to seek things which are above comma where Christ is comma seated at the right hand of God and and that just seems to be um, right to think about where Christ is uh, and the fact that he has authority um, and to focus on that apart from anything else. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Mm